Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. And this is the Robots Took My Job Before I Even Had One edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today is Ryan Avent, senior editor at The Economist, where he writes the weekly free exchange column, and he's the author of a new book called The Wealth of Humans, Work, Power, and Status in the 21st Century. And on the show, we're going to be talking about social capital, which we'll define in just a moment. It's a big theme in Ryan's book, how it applies to your work life and the broader economic outcomes of national economies. And we'll close with a timely discussion of monetary policy. Ryan, welcome to the show, man. Hey, Carter. Thanks for having me. So uh, you're a senior editor at The Economist, and you write a column, and now you've published a book. You actually have your roots in the blogosphere, though. I do. Um, That's where I began. Yeah, your transition to, like, you know, mainstream elite media sellout is basically complete at this point. This is your first book that's actually being printed on physical paper instead that's of right. just an ebook, right? That's right. Uh, I had the Kindle single, which was, you know— the Gated City. The Gated City, a uh, classic. I encourage everyone <laughs> to check it out. But no, this is a, uh, the, the first real proper book that has a real publisher and is available in right. bookstores and things. Social Capital, uh, it's in the middle portion of your book. It's also what I think might be um, the least speculative, and I don't mean speculative in a pejorative sense. I mean that it's the part that doesn't sort of dwell uh, on the future. Um, instead, it talks about very real present trends and recent trends. Um, it's also the part that I think is maybe most concretely applicable to people's day-to-day lives and specifically how they go about their business at work. So let's start talking about social capital uh, within the firm. First of all, let's define it. What exactly is social capital? Right. So there are all kinds of like woolly definitions for it. Robert Putnam wrote Bowling Alone and has this idea of social capital, which is very broad. In the book, I tried to to define it a little more kind of concretely. And what I, what I say is that it is patterns of behavior that are context dependent. And that sounds, um, I don't know, maybe a little esoteric, but like what it means basically is when you're in a particular organization or institution, you know how things kind of work within that institution. And it's different from how things work when you're in a different setting. Um, so you behave differently at work than you do when you're at your, you know, um, uh, yeah, your basketball intramural game or something like Thank you for like helping that. me out there. Yes. Um, <laughs> or anything. That was my example, right? Yeah. Uh, no, but, it, but that's right. You have everyone sort of knows that there's this culture that they abide by. And what I have sort of uh, speculated about in the book is that these these cultures, particularly within the firm, play a very important role. They kind of shape the flow of information and how decisions are made. And that actually, if you step back and kind of look at what makes big profitable companies really valuable, it seems like a large and growing share is actually this this culture, this uh, the way that people behave 
uh, within these companies. Right. And then to explain why that is, we have to take kind of another step back to explain that the nature of companies now is very different from what they were like a couple of hundred years ago or even a hundred years ago. There's this great statistic in your book about how it used to be that if you wanted to measure the value of a company, 80% of that value would come from the physical stuff that the company owns. Maybe it's factories or it's buildings or the stuff it makes. Now it's flipped, right? 20% is the uh, physical stuff. 80% is the processes, how the company goes about making its stuff instead. Yep. It's um, what some people refer to as dark matter. We don't really – it's like a residual. you know. And some of it is probably kind of what, what people talk about as brand value or, or goodwill or things like that. But uh, it seems like a lot of it is just the know-how that's particular to that firm that is – the secret sauce that they use to kind of figure out what markets are looking for and how can they best provide it. Yeah, worth noting, by the way, that this doesn't just apply to service sector companies. You can still be a company that makes physical products, but now what matters in terms of those products are things like design, how you ship them across the world, all of the stuff uh, that can be digitized now and that has more to do with like your cognitive Mm -hmm. uh, abilities rather than uh, your ability to apply machines or muscle to the making of those goods. I mean, we we sort of forget uh, that Apple is a manufacturer, but it is. It's a manufacturer. It makes products that that sit on on shelves. But all the stuff that Apple does is that that matters is figuring out what people might want to buy. It's the design and engineering stuff. It's managing these massive global supply chains. It's the marketing. And all of this stuff is just really about the flow of information, kind of knowing uh, who knows what that is of value and how it can be combined with the invaluable stuff that other people know. And that's just culture. It's in that crazy spaceship that they're building in Cupertino. That's where, you know, that's that's what that's doing is making this culture right. work. So the, the very broad story here is that these incredible productivity gains in terms of how we make stuff have led to a situation where um, companies now uh, are more dependent on cognitive ability. They're dependent on certain ways of doing things, their processes. uh, And that means also that they're very highly dependent on internal culture, right? When you talk about social capital, what's interesting also is that social capital is something that's very specific to each individual company, right? When you say context-dependent, In the case of the firm, the firm is the context. So it's not so simple to transfer social capital from the Financial Times, say, to another even journalistic organization, another organization in the same industry like the Wall Street Journal uh, or even The Economist or something like that. You can't just say, well, I know what the social capital is, so if I get hired by The Economist, I'll implement that. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, and I think that has all sorts of kind of funny implications that aren't sort of immediately obvious. So like, you know, one of the things is that um, there's a bit of a competitive firewall, right? If if somebody's doing something that's really working for them, you can't just sort of, you know, do a breakdown of the thing that they're making and say, okay, now we know what they're doing. We can do that. It's really much trickier and their success is kind of built on on this culture. If you're a worker, it's tricky too because you spend time learning this culture, internalizing it, getting all the nuances of it. Uh, you can't take that with you when you go. I mean, you can, but it won't do you any good. So it's um, it's a it's a thing that sort of provides more bargaining power to the firm, and that helps them capture more of the the, the gains from whatever the company's doing. Sure. And uh, another point you make in the book uh, is that this plays into the recent inequality trends, right? Because uh, there's been some research showing that actually a lot of income inequality gains have been down to between firm outcomes rather than within firm outcomes. And in English, 
what that means is that um, a secretary or a mid-ranking manager working for, say, Microsoft, right, will make a lot more money than somebody with the exact same position and who maybe even does a lot of the same tasks at a much smaller software manufacturer. That's right. Yeah. So the this this research, which is really interesting, makes this point that uh, most of the inequality in the U.S. has to do with this inequality between firms uh, rather than just sort of people generally. Um, the other kind of interesting thing about that research, which I think totally works with kind of the social capital story, is that a lot of these differences come from the fact that really productive firms that have this valuable social capital kind of spin off everything else. You know, everything that can be quantified and measured can be outsourced or done through contracts with other companies. And they just retain the really kind of valuable stuff, the woolly stuff, the culture, and uh, are therefore able to kind of share the profits uh, across fewer people. So, I mean, I think a big part of the story is, you know, you figure out what the really necessary things are that you can't define. And you keep as few people around and involved in that as possible so that everyone can be paid as much as possible. Yeah. And I mean, so the the primary theme of your book, the overarching theme of your book, is that the world has been coming into a transformational period of labor abundance, that Mm -hmm. we have all these workers essentially competing for uh, the same jobs. And obviously, that gives them a lot less bargaining power. In the context of social capital, when you look at between firm inequality and you realize uh, that the companies that can pay a lot more, right, have a limited number of slots and they're the successful ones, you have all these workers competing for jobs at those companies and it means that the companies themselves have all the bargaining power or most of the bargaining power. It makes it harder for the workers. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, the because the social capital is the stuff that's generating a lot of the value, you know, the individual employee, if it were, you know, if it were about kind of the computer engineering skills that the employee had, the employee could then say, I can take this elsewhere and do just as well. They can't do that. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, when you buy a share of stock in Apple, you sort of think of yourself as buying a share of the profits, a share of the, the kind of physical stuff that it owns. But you're, what you're effectively doing is buying a share of the social capital but that stuff lives in the heads of the employees. So it's, it's like you are uh, able to buy uh, a share of the human capital that these, these workers have and, and, and grab that, which is kind of a, a pernicious thing if, from a worker's perspective. But it also makes for a tough trade-off when you go to work every day, right? So you have limited, a limited amount of time each day. So let's talk about the difference between the two kinds of capital you just mentioned, human capital and mm-hmm. social capital, right? Social capital is... As you said, context-specific, it is specific to the company. It also means that to succeed within the company, you have to essentially master it. You have to learn the culture of the company. You have to know, for instance, who it is that you have to cultivate a relationship with if you want resources for a project or whatever. But at the same time, that social capital is not transferable if you want to go work somewhere else, right? Human capital is what's transferable. So you could spend your time either mastering social capital and trying to succeed within the company, and that's great, but that comes at the cost of developing your own human capital, which is the stuff that's really valuable for you as a person because that's the thing that gives you bargaining power at other companies and consequently also within your own company. Let me give an example because I, I think I just used a lot of words, a lot of kind of like uh, – I just they were I have the best words. Yeah. I, I know words, right, et cetera. Um, no, but let me, let, me, let me make this a little bit more concrete. When I come into work at the FT every day, right, just as I said, let's say I want to launch a new podcast, right? 
it helps to know who it is that can approve the budget for that kind of thing. Hopefully by that point, uh, I've, I've had, I have a relationship with that person or I know who it is that I have to ask for it. I know the internal procedures of the company, so I know how to go about doing this uh, and hopefully I'll get it, right? But I could also spend my day, um, instead of doing that, writing better, learning more about economics, right? Practicing actually speaking on a podcast, that kind of thing. Like there's a trade-off because time itself is a scarce resource. So it seems to me like if you're a worker, you have to figure this out every day you go into the office. Do I spend time developing my abilities that are transferable or do I spend time just trying to kick ass at the company I'm at? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's worth pointing out that you know, things have kind of always been like this to some extent. I mean, even, you know, back in the 19th century, if you're in a factory, like you needed to know who to talk to if a machine broke down or who was the guy who knew how to get, you know, the, the whatever, the assembly line running again. You know, these things mattered even back then. They matter much more now. And I think that when you take it in combination with the, the abundance of labor, that's another part of the, the, the argument of the book, it's that, you know, you when you find yourself inside one of these valuable kind of companies and one of these valuable communities, uh, you need to stay there because you, you're replaceable. There's people out there have the same human capital that you have more or less. Uh, and that's true even if you're even if you're incredibly good at what you do. Uh, what they don't have is the social capital that you've invested in. And so it's um, – I think in a way it, uh, it, it just – we can see how it's really deepening the link between – uh, firm and worker, but in a way that's not advantageous to to the worker. To the worker, yeah. And I guess in, if we were in a world of labor scarcity instead of labor abundance, what the worker with a lot of social capital could then do is say, "Well, listen, I've spent all this time learning the internal procedures of this company, the culture. If I leave, I'm going to be really hard to replace, right?" So. Then that worker has some bargaining power. In a world of labor abundance, it's like, yeah, okay, we'd have to hire somebody else and train them, but it's cheap to do that. So yeah. screw you. And they have a strong incentive, whoever that new worker is, once if they get hired, to, to learn everything as quickly as possible because, as you say, that's the way you kind of succeed in these companies is by developing that. So you know, the fact that there is this pool of like willing workers out there um, is, you know, reinforces the fact that this important social capital, the benefits of it flow you know, upward and to shareholders and managers and rather than the workers themselves. Okay. Uh, me. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks for that depressing yeah, segue yeah. into the next, uh, into the next segment. Uh, so much for social capital uh, within firms. Let's talk about the importance of social capital um, for countries and specifically to the development models for economies that would like to catch up to um, rich world living standards, right? Mm -hmm. Social capital for a developing country, what does it mean in that context? Well, I, it, to some extent, it's the same thing, right? It's um, it's still patterns of behavior that are context dependent, but it's, it's applied much more broadly. I think it's less about kind of, uh, you know, in an organization, this culture is mostly about uh, processing information and, and making decisions, things like that. In, in the context of the country as a whole, it's more about establishing trust and contracts and uh, the, the institutions that allow economies to get rich, to grow. And, you know, this... By the way, this would include, like, the protection of property rights. Um, absolutely. Right to a fair wage, things like that. Yeah. Can you count on someone to fulfill their end of the to bargain? Just all, all these sorts of things that we don't even really think about because they're just, you know, part of what we do as we go about our day, but they end up being pretty, pretty doggone important. Now, you know, this kind of social capital has always been crucial, uh, or at least in, in, since the 19th century, it's been crucial in, in, in you know, being...
a rich country or a poor country. Uh, but there was kind of a period in the 90s and, and the 2000s where you could sort of, you know, take a shortcut around this bottleneck. Do an you know? and run around it. Right. Use exactly. a football analogy. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. And, uh, and ironically, the, you know, the same kind of uh, digital technology that's making social capital so important uh, in the rich world is what allowed countries to do that in run. Uh, because this technology allowed com- companies like Apple to set up these global supply chains, and uh, so you know if you're uh, if you're a Vietnam uh, or a China, you didn't have to build all those you know social institutions from the ground up. You could just say, "Hey, we're going to set up a factory and take a tiny chunk of that supply chain." And, and it was faster; it was a lot faster, right? So much like faster. Accumulating all that knowledge that the U.S. or the U.K. and other yeah. advanced economies had developed over 150 something yeah. years would have taken a while. Yeah. I mean, no, they, these countries were able to cram a century and a half of development uh, experience into two decades, basically. And, yeah. and it was great in the sense that, you know, it allowed hundreds of millions of workers to, uh, to grow richer. Uh, at the same time, those workers all contribute to the, you know, the abundance of labor uh, that's kind of um, causing, causing a lot of the, the difficulties in rich economies. But what seems to be occurring at the same time is this sort of in run is, and I don't know how you would extend the football metaphor. Maybe you can, maybe <laughs> okay, you can help me out here. But, it, <laughs> but when, when you have the shortcut to development, it ends up not being qualitatively. It ends early. There you go. Right. Yes. And I think that's what we're running into in, in a lot of countries now um, because they've, they've gone through this boom. They're part of the global economy, but they don't have those other institutions. And labor costs just aren't as important now as, uh, as a competitive advantage. So... Yeah, this is, by the way, your book has sort of a different take on the traditional development model than the one I had, but I don't think it's a competing story. I think it's very much a complementary story, right? So we've seen that first with the U.S. in the early part of the 19th century, later with Germany, then later with Japan and South Korea, and it's now known as the East Asian economic model, right, which China until very recently was following itself. You had uh, manufacturing as a key component. You had a limited amount of protectionism for some industries. Um, You had intense state-directed investment. It was export-led, and those exports had to compete, obviously, in the global marketplace. And you had a certain amount of technological thievery, uh, right? Like if, if, if uh, you know, if a rich world Knowledge company would say, yeah, exactly, of, call it what you want, yeah, right? Exactly. So, uh, but you had this economic model where for a while it would work. You can employ an awful lot of people in manufacturing. And there was an incentive for these countries to make sure that a lot of investment was, was flowing into that sector. Um, in part to help boost all the employment gains. And then as you got closer to the production frontier and it became clear that if you kept doing this for too long, you'd have all these kinds of malinvestment problems. You'd have investment going into the wrong places. Uh, You'd have ghost cities and things like that. So you'd start to rebalance and you'd start to liberalize parts of your economy. Uh, The story you tell is not antagonistic to that story, but instead uh, you use the kind of end-around treatment where essentially uh, the digitization of the global economy has made it easier for these countries to take a bite out of the supply chains by essentially inserting them into the middle of the supply chain because of new technologies, and they can sort of ramp up. They can accelerate the speed at which that development model actually works. Yeah. I mean, it's worth taking a step back and thinking about just how unusual the last sort of 20 years or so were for, for the emerging world, right? Like, so for, the, for all of industrial history before that, um, there was a, like kind of a small club of, of industrialized countries that were rich and everyone else was poor. And actually the rich got richer relative to the poor over time. And uh, with few exceptions, and every once in a while, a country would kind of 
you know, seemingly out of nowhere, make the leap, like like Japan, like then South Korea. But this this rarely happened. And then for a period of 20 years, suddenly everyone was catching up and uh, they were catching up really fast. And so like 75% of the emerging world was growing faster than the, uh, than, than the rich world. And part of that was because it wasn't necessarily the best time uh, for the rich world ever. But still, it was just an unprecedented phenomenon. And some of that was about, you know, commodity market boom and other things like that. But a lot of it had to do with with this explosion in, in trade uh, that was about supply chains. And, you know, I think my spin, and I, you're right to say that it's not at all in, in competition with the story you're telling. I think my spin would be that all those other things that countries were doing before, what they were trying to do and occasionally were successful at doing was building up these competencies and these institutions, this social capital that allowed them to become rich. And suddenly there was a way to skip all that and just go straight to manufacturing. And that was great, except it ran out of gas eventually. And then they didn't have all the other stuff that allowed them to to, to keep maturing and to develop new industries and to rebalance. And so we're stuck a bit. There's something interesting about this too, which is that technology enabled the acceleration of this process. But at the same time, Technology is also what's making it flame out maybe before uh, before its time and certainly before some of these countries wish it would flame out in the shape of something known as premature deindustrialization. Uh, why don't you just define it for us and then tell us why it matters? Sure. Well, so it's, it's this really interesting concept. It's kind of been developed by Arvin Subramanian and Danny Roderick uh, have written a lot about it. But it's basically the idea that over time, the, the point at which countries start to deindustrialize, so you know, the share of workers in, in manufacturing starts to fall, the share of manufacturing in the economy starts to fall, happens at ever lower levels of income. So when, you know, when Germany was developing, it got very rich before it started to, to see manufacturing become less important a part of its economy. Uh, when South Korea did it, it was a little bit poor when that process started. And uh, when China and Vietnam are doing it, uh, they're poor still. And then in the context of India, uh, you know, Arvind Subramanian says it's premature non-industrialization, that India has hardly gotten going at all, and already its share uh, of manufacturing in the economy is falling. The reason this matters is for precisely the thing you were talking about earlier. Manufacturing has always been the way that countries, um, you know, get rich. It's the ladder out of poverty. And so if that's not working anymore, we don't have a model. Right. And, doesn't um, mean something won't emerge. Just means we don't have something that's historically proven to work. Yeah. And I mean, there are. It's not that there aren't some other candidates. I mean, in, in India, there has been um, some success, kind of using uh, service sector industries to to kind of power development. The thing about the the sort of service sector model of development is that it just doesn't create very many jobs for kind of the the, the, the workers that aren't very skilled. So you know. China could employ a quarter of a million people in a single Foxconn plant. You know, India has great software industries, but they don't just don't employ anywhere nearly that many people. And the people that they that it does employ are people that are, are really highly skilled. So it kind of it's not a countrywide development model. It's a model that works for small communities that get very rich, and that's not necessarily good from a social perspective. Yeah, there, there was something really nicely articulated in the book as well, which is that the reason that rich world companies were happy to incorporate these developing countries into their supply chains was because of the savings on labor. Mm -hmm. But essentially what's happened is that digitization and automation have made it so cheap 
to house their factories close to where they are and to run those factories with just a few people, that the cost savings on labor now really just don't make it worth it anymore to outsource quite as much as they used to, but especially in a world of abundant labor where labor pretty much anywhere is pretty cheap. Yeah. There was this like two-decade sweet spot, right, where – Technology was advanced enough that uh, production could be done anywhere, but not so advanced that workers could be dispensed with entirely or to, to a great extent. And we seem to have come through <laughs> on the other side now. And so, you know, China is, wants to retain manufacturing. The way it's doing that uh, is automating uh, a lot of its plants. And as you say, in, in the U.S., you know, companies like uh, Tesla and other manufacturers are willing to build plants at home. But those plants just don't employ very many people. Uh, And that's why they're able to locate them here because they don't have to pay, you know, rich world wages. So it's a troubling thing from the perspective of workers in the rich world. It's a very troubling thing if you're an emerging market government and you're trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to provide jobs for all these people? Right. Okay. So much for the discussion of Ryan's book. Again, the title is The Wealth of Humans, Work, Power, and Status in the 21st Century. We really just skimmed the surface. Definitely go Check it out. Highly, highly recommend it. I just finished it myself. Ryan, we're going to close with a discussion of our favorite topic, monetary it. policy. Yes. All right. uh, it's not that monetary policy in the U.S. is uninteresting. It certainly isn't. But it does seem like all the really cool stuff is happening everywhere else now, right? Bank of Japan just announced like this suite of new ideas, uh, not quite unprecedented ideas, but pretty close to that. The ECB you know, has negative rates and is buying corporate bonds, right? The Fed is trying to figure out how to tighten without screwing up the economy too much. So let's take each of those in turn, right? Bank of Japan, what did it just do? And do you think it's likely to work, especially keeping in mind that your own publication, The Economist, just wrote a leader saying that central banks now need a little more help from the fiscal policy side? Yeah, so we, well, I mean, we, at The Economist, we have kind of an, an ongoing internal Debate. I won't call it an argument, yes. but debate. Um, I'm going to go ahead and guess that you did not write that letter. <laughs> I did not. Um, but it's, yeah, there's, uh, you know, if you listen to the central bankers themselves, most of them have been saying we could use a little help. You know, Ben Bernanke was out there saying we, we could use some help. So I don't think it's surprising that, you know, August publications like The Economist are, are moving in that direction. But um, Japan is certainly having a go at, you know, throwing the, the, the kitchen sink at the problem. My favorite bit of this is they said they were going to attempt to overshoot the inflation target, which I think is is maybe the most important part of the package. Um, Let's explain that really quickly. Uh, Japan has a 2% inflation target just like the U.S. has. Imagine you're shooting arrows at a target, right? And you're going to say we're going to make – you know, we're going to do our best to hit the bullseye, but we're going to make damn sure that arrows never go over, that if they miss, they're going to go under. And this is essentially what most central banks have done. Uh, and if you do that, lo and behold, you'll find that you always undershoot and the economy is weaker than it ought to be. Japan has said, you know what, we're going to be OK with uh, missing over the bullseye sometimes. And the idea is that, you know, maybe then you can actually hit the target. But that's not the only thing they're doing. Right. Goodness knows. They're, they're, at this point, they're, they're buying everything in sight. Well, they're maintaining the size of their of their bond buying, of their program, bond buying yeah, program. 80 trillion yen a year, which is, I think, the equivalent of like $700 billion or something mm-hmm. like that. They now own about a third of outstanding Japanese government debt. And if they, they keep this up, they will, they will soon own most. And, and who knows, maybe all, uh, which mm-hmm. would be an interesting experiment in and of itself. They are also doing funny things uh, in terms of pegging interest rates. They're steepening the yield curve specifically while also capping 
the uh, yield on the 10-year, which means more negative rates, I presume. Right. Uh, well, yeah, one would think. I, I suppose the way to look at it, or it depends it depends on what you think they're trying to do. Uh, it, 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 some people sort of take kind of a mechanical approach, right? And they're saying that what the Bank of Japan wants to do is to use the levers available to it to, to get the economy growing again. And that might be uh, purchases that depreciate the value of the yen. It might be stuff that makes it more attractive to companies to borrow. My approach to this has always been that it's expectations that matter. And so it's kind of interesting that they're using all these different things, but the the shock and awe effect is the most important. And changing the target, essentially. Change, well, changing the target, but also showing a willingness to do all sorts of crazy things to, to, to hit it. Right. And things that have historically seemed like perhaps not that sensible. Right. A kind um, of responsible irresponsibility. Yeah. As I think some people uh, describe it. And I, you know, I'm in the camp of those people who think that it seems to be working, you know, that the, the, a lot of the variables seems to be moving in the right direction. Yeah, I, I am too. I was uh, I was kind of impressed by the cleverness of what the BOJ did, actually, um, because the day before, I was thinking that the bank was in a real fix, because if it tried to steepen the yield curve to help uh, financial institutions, which uh, have been harmed by the negative rate policy, um, if it tried to steepen the yield curve, but the long rates went up by too much, then people would start saying that this was a kind of stealth tightening Right. But I, I didn't understand what else they were contemplating. And I certainly didn't know that they would say explicitly, we're going to try to overshoot 2%. Mm-hmm. That part was, was what impressed me the most. Let's go to Europe for a second. Uh, the ECB is, I think, uh, in such a complicated situation, right? More complicated, I think, than either Japan or the US. Complicated isn't quite the same as difficult, but there are so many more institutional and political barriers that Mario Draghi has to deal with, what does he do from here? The first thing he does is pray that things keep going well everywhere else because uh, to an enormous extent, Europe's recovery is built on exports. And it's just astounding. There hasn't really been rebalancing within the Eurozone. You know, Germany uh, certainly hasn't seen its current account surplus come down. It's just everyone is exporting a lot more. You know, so long as the U.S. remains in recovery, so long as, uh, you know, things don't fall apart elsewhere, that's going to that's gonna work all right. But it's funny. I think – I should note that Europe is growing right now overall. Europe is growing, yes. Yeah. We should celebrate that fact. It hasn't done that a lot over the last eight <laughs> years. But I think, you know, as you say, Mario uh, Draghi has his, his hands tied. He's got to deal with – like uh, banking troubles in uh, a number of important countries, most notably Italy. Uh, He's got to deal with truculent governments. It's worth noting that he is getting a teeny bit of fiscal help that uh, the Northern Europeans haven't been quite as strict with, you know, uh, with Spain and Portugal as they could have been. Um, But it's it's a real mess. And, um, you know, I think the best thing that ever happened to the Eurozone was when it actually slipped into deflation because that gave – Draghi permission to do that gave the ECB permission to do uh, much more aggressive uh, easing, but um, you know also he's, showed that it was a real threat that that wasn't some idle speculative thing where right. people were you know fear mongering or whatever. It actually could happen because it did happen. It did. It did happen, and it's not like they're sort of facing raging inflation at this point. But yeah, I you know I'm I'm still very pessimistic over the long run about the Eurozone economy, but I think. My worries have shifted more to the political side, mm-hmm. and some of that has to do with just, you know, Brexit. You know, Britain's obviously not in the eurozone, but it's um, part of that general mood of yeah of skepticism. And there are a lot of important elections coming up that could 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 go quite badly for people who 
like the Eurozone. Okay. Uh, we're going to skip the Bank of England uh, for time here. Sure. Uh, even though they've got sure. a tough situation. You've been dealing with them for quite a, quite a bit because yeah. you were based in London until recently. Let's talk about uh, the Fed. Uh, Janet Yellen just this week or by the time listeners hear this last week uh, decided to hold off once again on raising rates. I want to talk about uh, something that Lyle Brannard spoke about in her uh, speech from a couple of weeks ago. She essentially argued that monetary policy is in a new normal. Full disclosure, I think Ryan and I have been arguing that for years now. She's um, catching up to us, this is, which is good. It's about time. Uh, but there were two specific points uh, that she made that I want to talk about here. The first is on the issue of labor market slack, which we've been kind of wondering about for years, and it's still not settled. That's her point. So the idea here is that, yes, the unemployment rate has come down a lot, but it doesn't mean it's at the point where it's about to drive up wage growth so much that it's going to feed into broader uh, and really aggressive inflationary measures. We actually still don't know because there could still be a lot of workers who come into the labor market if the economy uh, accelerates even from this point. You know, if you listen to what a lot of the folks were saying at the beginning of the year, that's when I say folks, I mean people on the FOMC, um, folks just like Stanley, you know, just, just good folks. You sound like Barack Obama. <laughs> exactly. Well, well thank you. Um, <laughs> there, was, there was clearly the view that they, they thought they knew how the labor markets were working these days and that, you know, they were confident that when unemployment got low enough, uh, just, you know, as a matter of course, wages and then inflation were going to tick up. And so you had Stanley Fisher saying, we're going to hike four times. And as it turned out, um, employment stayed low and hiring stayed rapid, but we didn't get the, you know, the wages, uh, the, the growth in, in wages and inflation. So thank goodness that, you know. In fact, inflation has kind of flattened over the last few months. It's leveled off. It has, in fact. So I think, if anything, they should be more cautious now about, uh, you know, about thinking they know how much slack there is in the economy. But I, you know, it's uh, with the most recent meeting, it doesn't seem like the the FOMC as a whole is unsure. It seems like there are two camps that are sure and that are just disagreeing more. And so we had three dissents this last time. And the the governors are the ones that were making the, the call, it seems. And, and that's good. It'll be interesting to see how that, that disagreement plays okay. out. Okay. Uh, here's the second thing that yep. Lyle Bernard yep. spoke about that I want to uh, discuss for a minute. She made the point that the Fed has to be a lot more attuned to what's happening abroad than it used to be. It's not that it ever was anti-cosmopolitan or that it could ignore what was happening overseas because that could always have some impact on the U.S. economy. But now global markets are so much more tightly integrated with U.S. markets, in part because of something that you actually wrote about in your book, which is the chase for safe yield, the chase for safe assets. When something happens abroad, there's all kinds of money flooding into the U.S., which drives up the value of the dollar and has other effects on our financial markets, potentially distortionate. Is that, is that a word, distorting effects on our financial markets? Yeah. And so we have to be very careful, uh, a lot more careful than we used to be able to be, about acknowledging the potential impact of global markets on the U.S. Yeah. I don't really see – I would say this, but I don't really see how it's even like a controversial point at this, at, at this point because the Fed has been going through the same – cycle again and again and again over the last few years where they start talking about tightening uh, and then long before they ever actually get the opportunity to do it, as you say, uh, the dollar uh, appreciates, yields on treasuries fall, uh, a lot of times equities fall at the same time. And it's so clear that just global markets are anticipating this. They're having kind of a chilling effect on the economy and the Fed then isn't able to tighten. And so we, we get stuck in this this low rate world, you know, there are ways that you can kind of minimize the difficulties created by this. Uh, you can have a higher inflation target, for instance. 
but they're just really uh, reluctant to kind of come around to that view. They're just kind of stubbornly plowing forward and thinking, well, this time it'll work. But it's, you know, I, I'm hoping that Brainerd is, is, is winning this argument because it seems totally obvious to me that they're going to fail. Yeah, I, to, to make the uh, contrast with the Bank of Japan, the Fed saying that it's trying to get into a situation where it smoothly glides into 2% seems to have the de facto implication that 2% is... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Actually, a ceiling, not a target, because you, you have people like Stan Fisher saying that inflation is a stone's throw from 2% when it's at one6 I wonder if he'd say the same thing if inflation were at 2.4%. I think instead there'd be a lot of panic about bringing it down. Yeah. I don't envy uh, Janet Yellen. She's got a really tough job. But the, the kind of rhetorical knots she ties herself in at the press conferences, because inevitably someone says, is it really a symmetric target? You know, are you actually, you know, as unhappy about undershooting? She says yes. And she says yes. She says, but we're not, you know, but then she has to kind of, you know, say, but we're not trying to overshoot. But if we did overshoot, uh, you know, that would be OK, but we're definitely not going to. <laughs> and it's just, you know, and you look at the projections and none of them show them ever getting above 2%. Uh, it just makes no sense. And I think, you know, eventually the way it gets resolved is either they tighten too much and we fall into recession or they say, OK, fine, we're actually going to we're going to end up where Japan is. You know, maybe it'll take another 10 years, um, but we're going to, to actively overshoot and, and, and lo and behold, then they'll hit the target. OK, Ryan Avent. Thanks for this. This was an awesome chat, but we're not letting you go yet because we got to do long form recommendations. What do you got for our listeners? Well, it's kind of nerdy and wonky, but uh, it's the it's been all the rage in the econ- economics blogosphere, which we reside in, and it's this you know Paul Romer is a brilliant uh, economist, um, has done a lot of work on growth and on cities and all sorts of other things, has just been laying into parts of the macroeconomic world, and uh, uh, just this past week, a paper of his circulated that basically accused macroeconomics of not being very sciencey, of yeah. being the opposite of sciencey, of of sort of of building models that gave researchers so much freedom that they could they could make them say whatever they wanted and then kind of conducting themselves professionally by you know operating in circles of like-minded people so that they never had to come to terms with with the ridiculousness of all this and it's just fascinating to me uh, but also super encouraging because you know macroeconomics seems to have gotten stuck I think yeah he he was responding to um some feedback on Twitter by saying that essentially we need to get back to a Friedmanesque 
kind of uh, intellectual discussion where you don't respond to somebody's paper that you disagree with by saying, uh, hey, listen, this is like really interesting and I think we can learn something from this. I don't totally agree with you and here's why. Instead, we should be saying, oh, this is complete bullshit, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's, you know, so there's – he talks about this uh, hucksterism that it came from this, uh, this famous economist, George Stigler, who was basically – of the the opinion that the way big scientific ideas get adopted is you have uh, someone who's so confident that they're right that they go out and they persuade everyone and, and they're a bit like a like a con man in that sense. Uh, but then if they're right, they're right. And I think you know Romer's point is that we've you know if you take that attitude and then you also venerate these old you know these old uh, you know famous economists, you just get stuck in this world where you it's basically religion. You can't ever. You know, there's no basis on which to disagree with with people and to get rid of bad ideas. And um, what needs to be brought back is a good old sense of kind of, you know, calling bullshit. Yeah, that's by Paul Romer. Uh, We'll put a link to that on the show notes. My own recommendation uh, is a lot less wonky. All right. Uh, It falls into the realm of the snarky or maybe the humorous. There's an article at the All uh, that's titled "Writing is Totally Not a Job." It is sarcastic. Uh, it's very funny, and it is responding to another article that was written at the Billfold, essentially saying that writing is a really bad way to make a living. That most of the people who earn money writing are doing it as a second job. Um, if you read between the lines, though, you'll see that it's quite a uh, an incisive meta narrative on like the nature of work right now, and there are some uh, links between that. And between Ryan's book itself, and you like how I brought all that around. I think that was that was beautifully done. <laughs> that was such an elegant segue. Uh, the Wealth of Humans. I'll say it one last time by Ryan Avent. Ryan, thanks for coming in, man. Thank you, Cardiff. And that's all the time we have for today's show. Send us an email to alphachat at ft.com. You can also call us at nine one seven. For our overseas listeners, that is a U.S. number, so the country code is plus one. Leave a review, rate the show on iTunes. It really does help more people find the show. Uh, Show notes and links to what we've discussed are on ft.com forward slash alpha chat. Find me on Twitter. I'm at Cardiff Garcia. Ryan is at Ryan Avent. There might be an abundance of labor, but there is only one amazing Amy Keene, our editor and producer. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat. Alpha Chat.